Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? Uh, I am Mark Marin. This is my podcast. As you can tell, I am not in the garage. I think you can tell. Or maybe I'm getting more sensitive to sound as I get older. Obviously, you can tell because it sounds different. I would think this is one of the weirdest hotel rooms I've ever been in. How's it going? Everything all right with you? Oh, these mics are sensitive. I'm, uh, I, my body doesn't know what time it is. That's the, that is the fucked up thing about traveling internationally is that, uh, you know, I kind of want to go to bed. It's kind of late here. I, I've got a lot of press to do coming up. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep. I don't know if I'll wake up at three in the morning with my body thinking it's breakfast time or dinner time or I don't fucking know, man. Did I mention that T-Bone Burnett's on the show today? He is. T-Bone Burnett. This is one of those guys that, uh, you know, he just shows up everywhere. He's like this grand American music archivist, producer, musician, and his career has spanned decades. It just seemed like one of those, another one of those sort of like, I wouldn't call him a dark wizard, but he's certainly a wizard of something, of American music and production and history of music. I... I was thrilled when I could talk to him, but like when I did some research about him, I, I thought, man, how am I going to cover this? But we had a really, really good conversation. It was very exciting. And he's got a, a new album coming out. It's his first album in 11 years. It's called uh, The Invisible Light Acoustic Space. It comes out next Friday, April 12th. But uh, but yeah, he's here. And I mistakenly thought he was related to the Rockabilly Burnets, the Rocky Burnett. Is that the guy's name from back in the day? They're not. They're not related at all. So that was a that didn't go anywhere. That trajectory of possible conversation ended with, oh, you're not related to him? Yeah, good times. Not thorough research. Thought I'd I thought I'd go out of the box a little bit and make an assumption, and they don't even spell their names the same. That's the kind of show I do. What kind of show are you doing? So look, folks, before I get too uh, lost in my self-loathing and what I ate earlier on the plane and just downstairs in this weird hotel, truly weird hotel. Uh, we're just a little more than a week away from Record Store Day. And if you don't know about Record Store Day, it's on Saturday, April 13th, and it's an annual event where fans and artists can celebrate the culture of independently owned record stores. 
Well, this year, we worked with the good people at Newberry Comics to put together a very limited edition vinyl album on the official Record Store Day label. It's called In the Garage Live Music from WTF with Mark Marin. That's the show you're listening to right now. We got some great artists to agree to be on the record, so you'll get 10 acoustic performances with Jay Maskus, Melissa Etheridge, E from Eels, Karen Kilgariff, uh, Ben Harper and Charlie Musselwhite, Nick Lowe, Margot Price, Jason Isbell, Amy Mann, and Dave Alvin. We're donating our proceeds to the charity Musicians on Call who bring music to patients in healthcare facilities to add some joy to their day as music will. If you want more info about the album or about Record Store Day in general, go to recordstoreday.com. You can search on the site for your local record store and make sure you find out when they open because a lot of exclusive Record Store Day albums sell out like immediately. A big thanks to Newberry Comics for collaborating with us and to Fingerprints Music in Long Beach who kicked ass with the artistic design on the album. Uh, the cover is really something else. It's, it's worth it for the cover. Cover art means something. I mean, if you're going to do the vinyl thing, appreciate the cover art. Again, Record Store Day 2019 is on April 13th, so go find participating stores at recordstoreday.com and get your copy of In the Garage before they sell out, folks. So this hotel is very odd. I'm staying at a hotel in London. But do you know the scenes in 2001, the movie that take place in that room where he sees himself as an old guy and it's just like a white room with some fairly kind of uh, Victorian-ish furniture in my recollection, this room looks like it was kind of based on it. It's sparse. It's laid out oddly. I, d I do not see an old man version of myself sitting on the chair. Wait a minute. I am him. I am the old man version of myself sitting on the chair. Where's the younger me sitting across the room? Or the infant me? Where's the star child? But yeah, this this... This whole hotel looks like it's sort of a riff on Kubrick. Like out in the hall, there's like, I don't know what's going on out there, but it's a long gray hall. That's not too Kubricky, but but there's a guy painting the walls out there. It, it's, it is a little shining-like, but not shining, as shining as the elevator lobby. And the main lobby is very minimal. It's, it's trippy, man. I'm in a trippy place and uh, it echoes. So I'm sorry about that, but why is there a guy out there painting at 10.30 at night? There's a gentleman in the hallway just patiently painting the dark gray walls at 10.30 at night. I, I believe he's real. I don't know. I did not see a pair of twins or a, uh, or a river of blood rushing out of the elevator, but there is what I'm assuming to be a real person painting out there at 10.30 at night. I will go double check again. Uh, if I see him again, maybe maybe what will unfold here is uh, maybe I'll never leave this hotel. Maybe that's what's happening. Oh, fuck, man. I, I'm sleep deprived. But if I go downstairs tomorrow and ask them, why is there a guy painting the walls at 10.30 at night? And they go, what guy? I don't know if you're going to talk to me again. Or the show's going to get very interesting because I've entered another dimension. Am I even alive? God damn it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. And because I'm a little tweaked and a little full of anxiety, uh, and because I'm slowly slipping off my regimen that got me down to the svelte 
weight of 167 pounds that I've been holding with exercise and diet, which I enjoy a great deal. I've, uh, I'm already discouraged about the possibility of uh, going to the gym here because the pound to kilogram thing kind of fucks me up with the weights and, uh, you know, I need consistency. That's what happens. I think that's what it is, folks, is that when I go abroad, my sense of consistency uh, seems to get a little tweaked. I went down to the restaurant downstairs and I think I ate a half a loaf of bread, fresh bread with the crispy crust, never eat the bread, and just maybe about a quarter cup of uh, butter with the large rock salt sprinkled on it. Just so slathered the crust of the bread with just like spoonfuls of butter and ate it. Uh, I'm realizing that may have been a suicide attempt. But I'm talking about it and it was amazing. It's a real slow one. It's one of those slow suicide attempts. But I do have a bit of cholesterol. I do think I just, I think that butter probably stopped in my heart. And uh, I'm going to double up on the statins. That's my big plan. I will eat this half a loaf of bread and slather it with salted butter so I can feel cozy inside, followed by maybe eight to uh, 72 hours of self-loathing. So I got a plan. I can schedule it. I got a plan. Keep myself in a sort of a slow percolation of shame, self-judgment, and a bit of self-contempt. And uh, that's how I prepare to do shows abroad. Yep. I used, to, I used to do that in the States too, but that seems to have gone away there. But I'm going old school. Just uh, fuck, man. What's this going to be like? God damn it. I'm an asshole. What the fuck did I do? And now Mark Marin. How's everybody doing? Yeah. A little tip. Pro tip for you. If you want to work from that place, uh, it's worked for me on and off. Mostly off. But, you know, do what you got to do to figure out where you're at. You know? If you got to push yourself down in the pit every few years just to pull yourself out and make note of what you learned there or how you're going to change, then you got to do it. All right, this is turning into uh, something that's becoming emotionally abstract. I think we should move along. I I did get a funny email because you guys know how much I talk about that movie, Michael Clayton. This was good. Subject line, Michael Clayton. Mark, I also love the film and felt obligated to share this quick story. I saw Michael Clayton in Manhattan. I think it was Kipps Bay. Anyway, at the end of the film, he walks out of the 52nd and 6th Avenue Hilton and immediately hails a cab in what looks like rush hour. Someone in the theater shouts aloud, no way does he get a cab on 6th Avenue that fucking quick. It was hysterical and a great New York moment. The crowd erupted in laughter. Anyway, thinking of that makes me laugh. Love the pod. Thank you, friend. Mike, thank you for that. It's always good. So, Ian, it's nice that... uh, if someone's going to yell at the screen, it's nice that it happens at the end during the credits and, and he delivers. It gets a good laugh. Solid. Because 99.9% of the time, uh, it doesn't get a good laugh and uh, the person's an asshole and it's not at the end of the movie. So I'm glad you had that experience. Glad you shared it. Um, all right. Yeah, it was a little daunting, folks. A little daunting to know that I was going to have um, T-Bone Burnett on the show. 
I've always been impressed with his work. I remember uh, some of his solo stuff from back in the day. I love that. But he was always that guy that you'd see that was producing a lot of the traditional Americana music, like the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack and uh, a lot of live events. But he's just one of these guys where you really, you know, you kind of pop in to check out what he's done and what he's doing, and it never stops. And it was uh, it was great. It, it, it kind of, this was one of those conversations that uh, really blew my mind uh, about music in a way. It was engaging and exciting, and um, I'm glad I had him. And his new album is very, it's very interesting. It's very good. Uh, it's the first album he's done in 11 years. The Invisible Light Acoustic Space comes out next Friday, April 12th. You can get that wherever you get your music. And this is me talking to T-Bone Burnett back in the garage. And I'm going to, uh, while you listen to this, uh, I'm going to go outside in the hall and see if I'm hallucinating. So enjoy the talk. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Well, you don't do these uh, long-form situations much? Uh, I haven't been doing much of anything except <laughs> writing for a few years now. Really? You just yeah. hold up and write? Yeah, I sort of hold up and write. I quit producing records. I still did a... I did a... Worked with a couple of people. Yeah. And uh, did a TV show, did True Detective in the last year. Yeah, I mean, I just watched the, you you did the latest one? I did all of them, yeah. The music's great. So Thank what, you. Now, is that, like, is that, but I'm trying to remember, so there's soundtrack and then there's original songs, but it, was there, was, was there any um, kind of archival stuff that you did or was it all? No, it was mostly, mostly score this third season. Right. With a few... Uh, one piece I did with Andrew Bird. Right. He's sort of a genius, right? <laughs> he's amazing, yeah. He's That's a, what I hear. Yeah, he's good. He, he did really my friend did. Lynn's last movie. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, he's very good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like this last season. So you got to see it before anyone else. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so when you do something like True Detective, with that you did all three seasons and you're scoring it, do you sit down with someone like Nick and do you, you, you know, you he says, watch this, you know, feel the tone? Yeah. And, and 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 apply your wizardry. Well, you know, we talk. You know, I I I'm not a film scorer by profession. You've done enough. <laughs> I've done. I, I do it. And I love. At what it. point do you call yourself that man? I, I mean, don't you've... know. I I don't think I'll ever call myself that. But but I but I love to do. It. I love to put image and and music together. 
And and I just always stay inside the character. I come from completely in the character. Yeah. So in this case, the it was a character who was degener whose mental state was degenerating. Right. And, yeah. Uh, so we started off. We started off with the idea that this was a, a dangerous place. Right. His brain. No, the place oh. where the Arkansas. Oh yeah. <laughs> Arkansas, Vietnam, where? Yeah, all of that. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, the planet Earth is sure. a dangerous place. Yeah, getting getting there. Yeah, but uh, but uh, as as we go into it, we we started not quite as discordant a place as we get to, as his mind dis dis integrates. Yeah. And so, you know, as we went along, things got more distorted, more discordant. Oh, okay. More fractured. Right. You know. And that and you were matching sound to that. Yeah. I, you know, I don't I don't believe that the music is supposed to lead the viewer through right. the emotions. Right. Or I believe it's the the music is is supposed to stay with the character. Oh, interesting. And is that something that you conceived, or or is that something that was passed down to you by some other, some elder? No, you know, I I I, I will say that Danny Elfman taught me a tremendous amount about film score, uh -huh. and he is a master, and he yeah. is he is a film scorer. Yeah, you know? yeah well, among I mean, other things. So, in, if you don't consider yourself a film scorer necessarily, you are somebody that does soundtracks. Yeah, I do. I sort of just help with the music. <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. T-Bone Burnett helps with music. That's it, That's basically. on your business card. Yeah. But, I mean, at, talking about darkness and talking about... I mean, I did... I listened to the uh, the new record a couple of times. Oh, good. The, the Invisible Light uh, Acoustic Space. It, and it seems a little dark. Well, that's it. It is a dark meditation on the culture we're living in. Yes, it is. But that's. But I do feel there's a great deal of light in it, but it's invisible. I think that's the. Well, no, I did. I I, I kind of got what you were saying because I mean it's 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 a, it seems different in in um, musically than than a lot of your records. Uh, there there is more space and there is a, a, a sort of more of a almost mystical continuity that's there's not it's not about hooks most it seems like most of the songs are are, are spoken word poetry that's, almost that's right. yeah and that uh, beat, beat poetry yeah yeah, yeah you seem to like that it comes it comes and goes throughout all your stuff that's right there's I usually a tune or two where you're just talking yeah well I think of myself as a beat generation person do basically. you yeah I mean I think we're still a beat generation world. Oh yeah! Everybody says "cool" now. Well, you know, "cool" uh, was a way. It was a term that came about that African Americans uh, initiated or yeah. innovated in, as a way of not to get shot in the street for doing nothing. Are we cool? Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah. Be, be, cool. be cool, man. Right. You know, and junkies had to be cool yeah, not to sure. get arrested. So it came from that world, and. You know, it, but at the time it was uh, it was only the initiates understood it. Sure, now everybody uses it. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, the beat generation they redefined the way we look at everything. Really, sex, politics. It started during the Second World War when all the the men were away. The dancers, the dances stopped happening. Yeah. So the musicians just sat down and said, "Okay, we're artists. We're not going to play for you to dance. We're going to play for you to listen." <laughs> I don't need to be in that big band. Yeah. So sit down <laughs> and listen. Yeah. And you know they were playing in the cabarets, which were in the basements of apartment houses, basically. So there were no drums initially because they it would make too much noise, and the people snapped because they couldn't clap because that would make too much noise. Yeah. And so it just got. It got cool.
but and, and that was, oh so that was it really no yeah. drums to begin with yeah were a lot of them then uh, by saying the dancing stops uh, that means that a lot of them were like were out of work from their gig in the big band yeah that's right mm-hmm. and and then they were all you know they were responding to the war and to what happened you know the end of the war the certainly jackson pollock's paintings are like Right, being in the middle of an atom bomb explosion as all the molecules fly apart. Right, they were they were codifying these things and trying to find some order in all of this all of this lunacy. Yeah, and then it was also sort of at that time where the 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 blues really sort of moved northward. That's right, and and started to expand uh, instrumentally. That's right. So you know, then you you know you have that whole sort of uh, the intensity and depth of the Chicago blues scene starting to happen right. alongside of uh, this pre-bebop, no-drum jazz business in basements. Yeah, that's right. Right? That's right. It was all happening. And where's country music at that time? I guess a, a lot of the, uh, the, the drunky outlaws are starting to uh, get big hits. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Hank Williams, you mean? Yeah. Sure. Lefty Frizzell. Yeah, they were, yeah, you know, uh, Hank Williams' co-writer, uh, Rose, what was his name? I forget the guy's first name, not Wesley, but Wesley's dad. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a pit, Tin Pen Alley songwriter, uh-huh. and, they, and they were trying to write broad hits, too. They were right. They weren't trying to be country, necessarily. They were just trying to be, they were all trying to be pop artists. Jimmy Rogers, who's called the father of country music. The singing break man? Yeah, he learned to play from an African-American. Hank Williams learned to play from an African-American. Really? Did he? Yeah. yeah. In fact, there's a there's a series we did, I did, uh, with Drew Christie called Drawn and Recorded, and there's yeah. a great story in it about Jimmy Rogers, about some missionaries going to Central Africa in the 20s and taking, a, or 30s maybe, and taking a Jimmy Rogers record. Yeah. And over time, Jimmy Rogers got mythologized in the Kipsigus tribe as a, a half man, half antelope. <laughs> and they have a song, they called him Chibi Rocha, and they uh-huh. have a song about that. So... I understand the beat started where we're talking about, but the poetry of the beatniks really started with, um, I don't know which, I, I guess some people attribute it to Ferlinghetti. Who, who, uh, Ginsburg. Ginsburg, you know. yeah, and Ferlinghetti, and then there was a Kerouac's 200-something choruses. That that was something. But there's a rhythm to it. Lord Buckley. Yeah, Lord, yeah, I love Buckley. Right? Yeah. But, uh, but, but it's a familiar mode of talking, you know, right. when you want to convey... You know, poetic impact. That's right. And and you do it throughout this record. And and did you, is that how you saw the background? Did you see because the music is not it's not obtrusive. It's woven in, and it seems like this is really showcasing what you're you're saying. Well, yeah, the music grew out of the work we were doing on Tr- in True Detective, really, which became very so abstract. That's where the the and, dark kind of like uh, yeah. And I don't mean to keep saying dark because I like dark. So when I say uh, yeah. dark, I I'm not saying like you know I don't know if you should. It's not danceable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it dark, as, as the man says. Yeah, you know? exactly. The music kind of floats. Yeah. Well, the music I think of it. It's you know dr- the drum was the first folk instrument. Yeah. You know, the uh, you know if this was being played in this village, the village over there knew not to come around. Well, know? I mean, I noticed that about a lot of your stuff is that you know you do use you, you know we're not talking you use uh, indigenous American drum beats. That's right. Uh, a lot of times, like right. they're, they're they're not like uh, they're not blues beats. They're not shuffles. They're 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 American Indian. Yeah, that's rhythms. right. That's right. 
That's right. But you know, back in those days, everybody listened to everybody. Back in the twenties, back in the early times, the, there's a lot. If you listen to, like, a, uh, from the Kiowa Indians, where, where I'm from. Where are you from? From Fort Worth, Texas. Fort Worth. Yeah. So, so th- those the Indian songs would be like, hey, you know, it sounds just like bluegrass, you know. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So everybody was checking out everybody. Jimmy Rogers was listening to uh, uh, Louis. Armstrong, you know. Well, no, I get that, but I, 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 it's hard for me sometimes to to find the integration of, of American Indian into certain things. Until I, there's a movie on called Rumble, a documentary about Link Ray and some of the the pioneers of rock and roll. Yeah, that's a good movie. It is. It's yeah. trippy, right, man? Yeah. I mean, you know, who would have known that? It, that was usually carried down genetically through actual individuals, right? Where they picked up the groove, right? You know, but I never, uh, you know, associate them as being you know singularly a uh, part of the, the the great mix that that evolved modern music but they're kind of there well they are they're a crucial important part of this of the music of the united states right to be sure sure yeah. you know here's one other interesting thing just off on the side for a yeah. minute a guy named mac mccormick who's probably the greatest blues archivist of all time died recently uh-huh and I was down. I was down in Houston a couple of weeks ago, looking at his archives. And one of the things I learned while I was did down they just there, call you and th- yeah, you, they you did. one of the guys. It's like you might want to go through this stuff. Yeah, they did. They did. They called his family, called and said, "Come look at this stuff," because they yeah. were they were wondering where to put it and what to do with it. Because uh-huh. he was he was bipolar and he didn't want anybody to see his stuff. But you know, Robert Johnson's name was Dusty Spencer. His real name, Robert Johnson, was a stage name. Wow, Dusty Spencer is even a better name. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> They, they called him Little Dusty because his dad was Big Dusty. You know? No kidding. But one of the things I learned is, and, and he's got pictures of Robert Johnson no one's ever seen. He's got pictures of Blind Lemon Jefferson no one's ever seen. Really? Yeah, it's an amazing archive. But one of the things he uncovered was that, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson had a song called The Blues Came From Texas Loping Like a Mule. And it was his theory that the blues actually did come from Texas because the blues came from all the fife and drum players uh-huh. back in the south in the in the very early days and the pipe the pipers when the Germans came into Texas, the Pipers picked up the harmonica, which the Germans brought with them and Mac McCormick said that was the actual beginning of the blues through that harmonica, yeah, no kidding, yeah. you buy it. Yeah, I do buy it actually. And, Are those you know, just shitty headphones? No, there? no, oh, okay. I just I ha- have one off. Oh, does that happen whenever you wear other headphones? I never wear headphones, but oh. I'm doing it here today. Thank you. <laughs> this is a big this is a big step. T Bone Burnett <laughs> The, the prolific producer and musical artist has never worn headphones. Yeah, I try not to. Yeah, I well, tr- you want to keep it real. You yeah. don't want to mediate anything. That's You're- right. <laughs> You're so right about that. <laughs> I get it. Well, I quite, I'll, I'll go with that. So the harmonica traveled from Germany through Texas into the Delta. But yeah, but you're right. The other thing is there were all of these France, you know, the mariachi musicians in Mexico were French wedding. They it came from mariage, you know, from they played at French weddings uh-huh. and that that was the music of the French weddings, but, but, the horns and But the polka groove came from the Germans. From the Germans, yeah. And that's like, you know, that's the that is some of the happiest music I can listen to. Right. I used to okay, I don't understand Spanish, man, but I grew up in New Mexico and there's always a station, I'm sure there's one here that was just that, that music all the time, yeah. you know, who stole the quiche? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just, in, but it's speaking in Spanish, and I like that I didn't understand it because yeah. it probably might have ruined it for me. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
Well, you're saying that it started with the drums on the new record. Oh, well, yeah, I was saying, so I, I look at this music as part folk music for, because it's very, there are, two, there are only two things happening. There are drums and then there's electronic music. So that's the global part of it, the electronic music. That's, how, that's how you're trying to bring the kids in? Yeah, I know, I, you know, <laughs> the, the kids, yeah, I hope they come in. They're certainly welcome. Mm-hmm. They used to say, when I would go out and talk about technology in the... 15 years ago they would say hey you're just an old man saying get off our yards kids and i would say no i'm saying you're welcome to play in my yard there's grass and there are trees and there are birds it's it's not you're welcome here you know sure (laughs) just don't don't bring the machine yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah don't bring the yeah don't don't grind the birds yeah (laughs) then how did you transition to uh, uh, a a more open-minded approach to electronic music well you know i've worked i started when i was 17 in fort worth i bought a recording studio and yeah. i started recording and anytime you put a mic in front of an instrument whether it's a, an acoustic guitar or a violin yeah. or a horn it becomes an electric instrument i get that as soon as you do that so i've been i've been doing electronic music and especially in the early days that, that's a pretty broad definition though i mean and, and i'm sure oh, that oh, at, the, yeah. at the time you were starting doing that you were sort of like which mic is going to be the most do you did you use old mics to begin with well i used the, the mics they had which are great mics and people are still using them neumann u47s and oh, those yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. High, sure. high, you know yeah so it was all the it was all great class a hi-fi equipment but, but, but what in in this record there there seems to be a synthesized sound yeah. sort of that has a continuous sort of hum to it that's, that, right. that's almost a eastern sounding that's true. uh to to this that that gives it a meditative quality that's true it's country and eastern music yeah you know? yeah well the, well that's right is that is the, do you recognize that going in yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, you're right so now I guess when I say electronic music, ha, you know, did there was there a period because you know even listening to stuff that you did with the Alpha Band and listening you know through your solo stuff, it, that you know, there is a, a commitment to very clean sounding instruments and not there's not a, a big synthesizer sound. Well, I don't. Uh, yeah, you know we're using analog synthesizers. I will say so where this, you got to plug things in. Yeah, yeah. there's some you know Moogs and, uh-huh. and things and and some of the old. The old synth. Well, you know, when I started, when I was seventeen, you, what, you used analog on this record. Yeah, this is all. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, so that's funny. So that, so that, like, it's it, all analog. But still. You, keep it honest, right? Yeah, you keep it honest. Right. So you're using analog synthesizers. Yeah, mostly. But yeah. we're using everything at this point, you know, because we, you know, we certainly, it, c- certainly in film and television. Pro Tools yeah. and the editing you got, you, that you can you've do. surrendered to that. Yeah, you're yeah. not going to be like, no, just tape. You're not going to. You're not. No, gonna... I still. I'm. I'm getting ready to do a project on tape uh, at the end of this month. But, but uh, I have to say, digital sound has come a long way since 1987 when yeah. they first started releasing Beatles records that sounded like somebody scratching their fingers on a chalkboard. You know? Yeah, well, when we were just in my house, you said that, you know, and I showed you my, my small record collection, I'm sure, in relation to yours, that uh, that 78s are actually the best way to, to the best sounding records. That's right, the best sounding storage medium, for sure, the best sounding transcriptions. So I'm, we're not being crazy when we say vinyl's better. No, it's actually, no, you know, the... There's a translation that takes place between an analog signal and a vinyl and a and a digital signal that actually degrades it. Right. And and part of the problem is you know sound is all travels in waves. Yeah. A hundred cycle tone takes probably ten or twelve feet to to 
to fully realize. Yeah. So when you take a hundred cycle tone and you break it up into samples, yeah, you're create you're going from a wave into these square forms, right? Into squares. They're pix- it's pixelated. Yeah. So and the problem is the more the the higher sampling rate you. Uh, use the more the more corners you're creating. You're, yeah. They create. They try to create. They try to emulate a wave with uh, squares. Right. 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 I get it. But right. it doesn't. It never really happens the same way. So you lose Sounds resonance. Like a, a bunch of blocks. Yeah. It Blocky. is. Blocky. Just like you. It's the same thing that happens with JPEGs with pictures. Yeah. When you, you. You know. Oh if yeah. You blow, you blow them, them up. up it's sort of like just they come about, apart. Yeah. Well, the same thing happens with sound. So it's not. You know. It's not just that. For a long time, they said analog sounds warmer you know and that was a cliche right but it's not that you have more depth depth that's what i noticed the most yeah you have more the imaging is much clearer yeah you have much more resonance because the because those those captures aren't able to really recognize all of the overtones that are happening like when when you hit any note on a piano Uh every other note on the piano is happening at some volume in that note (laughs) so so really but yeah because it just rings in the strings yeah, and it's just, but it's just there. Yeah, right, okay. In some volume. Most of the time, very, very low volumes. But when you hit two or three notes together, an overtone series is created, and some of those uh, notes that are at low volumes get repeated, yeah. and they come out at higher volumes, and different rhythms happen, and different yeah. uh, different whole chords, different tones happen. And that so, all gets flattened out and blocked. Yeah, well, it gets... Squared. It just get, Yeah, it gets removed, actually. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, because it just doesn't see it. It well, can't hear it. It's like, you know, high, you know, high, the, what they call in video they call it the soap opera effect when you see an old film yeah. that's transferred to some kind right. of high definition video yeah. yeah suddenly it looks like every everybody's uh you know the depth is weird yeah yeah it, yeah you see the space between the people and yeah. you know it's not real yeah and the, and the thing about this is a thing Joel Cohen and I have talked about quite a bit. The thing about film is it's already too high definition. That's why they put smoke and filter. That's why they have filters for uh-huh. the lights. And yeah. they, they're always trying to create uh, some sort of glue between between the different to parts give it, of the... To, to make it... Uh, what, 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 to make it what? Softer? To make it feel real. To make okay. Oh, it, interesting. To make it feel like you were looking at so, something. Oh, I see. So Joel Cohen and you have discussed this idea that that the 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 detail of film actually works against you know creating something that is convincing. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. It, because you can see the... Uh, uh, too much. You see the process uh-huh. rather than being listening to a story. That's interesting because yeah. they're so meticulous. Uh, those Cohens, the, uh, they you know, are indeed uh, about framing and about uh, dialoguing. Like everything is meticulous. Everything, you know, it's fun to s- sit behind the s- the screen when they're shooting and they're just pointing to different po- points in the screen. Like what's happening there? Why is something? Oh, during there? a shot? Yeah. Well, in the viewfinder. Yeah, in the viewfinder. Yeah. No shit. Yeah, they are meticulous. That's a and 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 yet it seems. So free flowing, they do one or two takes, one, two, you know, two or three takes. Well, it seems to me, from people I've talked to that have worked with them, I've not talked to them yet, uh, that they know exactly what they want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Every day, 
every actor gets uh, sides mm-hmm. with his lines with the with the frame mm-hmm. above them so he knows exactly where the camera is going to be when he says this line so you know he gets ready and it just flows they, right that's why they're able to do what they do because they do it economically you know yeah so but getting back to this idea of uh, yeah, I think we started with you know the the, the progress that has been made in technology in terms of honoring what I assume you were saying is a more authentic sound. Uh, it enables you to be a, a little less hard on yourself about using certain technologies. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's come a long way. And, and we've learned, we've spent a lot of time learning how to put smoke into the, into the digital realm. Right. Know, to, to filter it so that it feels... It feels like something's actually happening. Well, Neil Young tried with that Pomo player. That's right. Did you like it? Yeah, I did. I mean, it wasn't a big enough idea in the face of this avalanche that we've been... Of disposable garbage. Yes. Well, that's the thing that I noticed when I started getting into records again was that, you know, music that I grew up with, which, you know, I'm 55. So, you know, I'm just talking about radio. And I had records when I was a kid, but I, I mean, I don't know that my system would have enabled me to be sensitive to it, but I was listening to stuff that I knew well. On record, maybe for the first time through a good system since I was in high school, and uh, I I didn't hear how it was supposed to sound until I listened to it. Like I got a pretty good system in there, but it's really about the depth, and it's about the mix. That the mix flattens out, whether it's through an AM speaker or even through a mildly, even through a a fairly good car stereo, it still flattens out. That's right. So when you hear records through a decent system for the first time, you're like, what's wrong with this song? (laughs) You know, like- Gillian Welsh, I was talking to Gillian Welsh the other day, and she said she was looking, listening to Astral Weeks, and they, she said they have two systems, a digital system upstairs and an analog yeah. system downstairs. And she was listening to Astral Weeks on the digital system, and then she went downstairs and put it on on, on a record. And she said suddenly there was she was able to hear everything she needed to know for how to play that kind of music mm. in the analog. So that's a description of it. That's a good description of it. It's a hard thing to, to you know, you can't put it into a word like it's warmer. You know, that's right. That, that, right. That's I think a, it's more about depth. Yeah, and and clarity and and, uh, and size. And honoring the mix. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you know, that's what really gets flattened out is like the decisions that a producer or an artist made in, in what should be up front and what should be in the back and, you know, right. what should, you, you know because everything kind of gets smashed together. Yeah, everything's the same volume, yeah. essentially. When you started, you grew up in Texas the whole time? Yeah. You're a Texas guy. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, were you playing in high school? What was it? You know, when did it start? Yeah, I started playing. My mom brought me back an acoustic guitar for a gut string guitar from Mexico, which is the story of just about every Texas yeah. guitar player I know. <laughs> the, the, the gut string classical yeah. guitar. Right. Yeah. Right. From Mexico. Probably cost $5 mm-hmm. or something. But it made this crazy sound, and so I started playing with it. Yeah, you know? and uh, every, also the other uh, one interesting thing since we're back there, you know, the first th- song I learned to play was Wildwood Flower, Maybell Carter playing uh-huh. Wildwood Flower. Yeah, and that's that turns out it's just about every rock and roll guitar player learned to play guitar from Maybell Car- Mother Maybell. Really? Know? Yeah. I don't I don't know that one because yeah. I, I'm a different generation maybe, but I don't yeah. even know who she is. Well, she was the she was the uh, uh, daughter. She was one of the Carter. Oh, family. okay, got it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, so, she the extended Carter family. Yeah, AP 
Pop Carter. Yeah. And his his wife was Sarah, and then I think Maybell was was he she the mother? I think she was a daughter. probably the mother. No. Yeah, she was called Mother Maybell. So yeah. So it was a country folk. Uh, what Appalachian trip? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh-huh. exactly. And and that's what you learned first. Yeah, because that that's just what everybody learned. That, that was that was like the step one. That laid the original groove. That was the first track you recorded in your brain. She grooved like a mother. I'll say that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She did. So, okay, so you're doing that with your gut guitar, and then what year are we talking? When did rock and roll ruin your brain? Uh, you know, I, I, I think the first rock and roll record I bought was a, a Ricky Nelson song called Waiting in School. Uh-huh. And I, I think that's where I, I first connected with rock and roll was uh, on the Ozzy and Harriet show. Oh, really? Because at the end of every show, Ricky Nelson would come on and, and play, sing a song, right? and he killed it. He was, you know, James Burton was the guitar player. Yeah monster guitar player. yeah and so but before that what was being played in the house what was what enchanted you well i downstairs my parents had a 78 collection that had been retired oh to and but there was a 78 player and and shelves of 78 uh-huh. so i was listening to duke ellington and Louis right, armstrong yeah. and cole porter and uh, you know ella fitzgerald so you had that in your brain that sophisticated melody yeah, and also just the idea, the thing that the thing that I loved the most about all that old music, there was a song called The Naughty Lady of Shady Lane mm. that was about a three three month old baby and there the way you could play with the worlds. And there was a song called Begin the Begin. Yeah. Oh that's great. That's a great I think I heard uh, Artie Shaw do that. Yeah, Cole Porter Cole Porter tune, I think. Yeah. But it's you know, I, I was I was taken with how you could create a whole world, a whole environment with a song with a piece of music. Right. So I would put that on and close my eyes and I would be in some world of tropical splendor as the right. lyric said. You right, know, right. With these people dancing the Beguine, whatever that was. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh so but it was uh it, it was it took you out. Yeah, it did. It yeah. was psychedelic. Yeah, early on. Yeah. Why, you know, that's a weird thing when you really think about the way you're talking about music, that we, you know, what music isn't psychedelic? If, right. it, if it's not psychedelic, it's probably not doing its job. It's probably not music. Well, it's, or else it's just a pop song. Yeah, right. You yeah. know, pop songs do a different thing. I think a pop song is designed to satisfy quickly. Uh, and and uh, you know they can I can I think they can go pretty deep obviously but I think to really you know get into a song to get into it as a a, a place an environment right. you know you got it it's a different part of the brain that's right yeah yeah so so you start playing the gut guitar but then are you compelled towards rock music yeah well at the time you know. Elvis Costello says that, uh, you know, there was rock and roll and then it became rock music. And as soon as it became rock, it took on all the qualities of a rock. It was hard and and inert. Uh-huh. And, but <clears throat> I, I look at it this way, that there are two kinds of music. There's sex music and mm-hmm. and war music. And rock music is more of war music. It's martial. It's doom, 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 doom. Really? Yeah. And rock and roll is sex music. It's swing music. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. the differentiation, rock and rock and roll. Yeah. So I would say there's swing music and and uh, Yeah, you got, it's got to swing. got to have a good drummer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, river dance or those things, that's martial music. Uh-huh, Even sure. dancing You can feel martial. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, r- right. But, like, w- so where, where do you put the... Uh, what, what's your take on the first rock song? Is it Rocket 88 or is it Rock Around the Clock or is it 
blue suede shoes. What do you think is the first rock and roll song? Well, first rock, you know, a lot of people say Rocket 88. I know. So, you know, but I don't know. I hear it going back to Milton Brown and the Brownies. And sure. J- Jimmy Rogers certainly played rock and roll songs. Right. yeah. If rock and roll... Part one definition of rock and roll, it's the b- blending of black and white culture, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, you know, that Jimmy Rogers would certainly be, Hank Williams would be an early version of that. Yeah. You know, so Move It On Over, that's certainly a rock and roll song. Yeah, oh, yeah. So when you started, when you get this studio at 17, I mean, what's uh, what's your agenda? What what compels you? Are you in a band at the time? No, I, 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 at the time, I wanted to be uh, Burt Bacharach. I thought he had the ideal life. He wrote songs for movies, wrote great songs, yeah. did arrangements, produced records. Yep. Got to work with Dionne Warwick, got to work with whomever <laughs> yeah, he wanted right, to. Right, married, yeah. married Angie Dickinson. Yeah. Had, had racehorses. That, that was your life. That's what he wanted. That was the aspiration. That's Yeah, that's that's the direction I was going. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, but we were doing a lot of experimental music. I was working with a band with a with some guys that were that later became space opera. They were called uh-huh. doing psychedelic music. But we were turning tapes around backwards and cutting right. things. We were doing a lot of. Uh, In what year is this? Sixty five. Oh, okay. Say. Yeah. Okay. So that so you're a little ahead of the curve on that. Well, or you know, the, the, it was already being done. But yes, it was being done in the fifties, even. But you know, in the sixties, yeah. Yeah, as soon as people got taped, they started playing with it. Yeah, yeah give people something, they'll turn it inside out. That's right. Yeah. So so you're recording your own stuff in the studio. That was the plan. That was the plan, yeah. my The plan was to write songs and get other people to sing them. So you were, you're already in the... You, you, you had a business mindset about it. Yeah, I guess I did, I yeah. have to say. Yeah. You knew that you know, you're know you going to write this down and get someone who's got some juice to do it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you're going <laughs> to build an empire. Yeah, the uh, Harlan Howard said once, he said, son, you can either write 10 songs and get a truck and a... PA system and a bus and some musicians and a publicist and a you know a producer and yeah. you can go around and play those songs or you can write 10 songs and get 10 guys with 10 trucks and 10 buses and 10 <laughs> PA systems you know? and yeah I thought that's a there's some wisdom in that did you land any no not really not early on I, I started you know the first stuff I started doing funnily enough was you know blues bands uh-huh so. Like who? Anybody? There was a there. My favorite record was a band called Robert Ely and his Five Careless Lovers uh-huh. that we recorded live in the New Blue Bird nightclub. I worked with a band called the Van Dykes. I remember that name. They, they were an R and B band in the '60s, and and then you know there was a club in town called Panther Hall. So in Fort Worth, yeah, in Fort yeah. Worth, where all the musicians, where all the country musicians play. Uh-huh. And Friday and Saturday nights, they would come over after work and record in the studio. So, oh, yeah? In your studio? Yeah, so Conway Twitty and... Early Doug, Conway Twitty. Yeah, and Doug Kershaw and those oh, cats. Doug Kershaw. Come, yeah, yeah he, he lived long enough to go hippie, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. He was pretty hippie from the get-go, oh, yeah? i got to say. Conway yeah. never went hippie. No, no, he went very bouffant. Yeah. <laughs> Who else? And and permed, too. Yeah, sure. But then there were a lot of kids. That wave that goes yeah, up, yeah. yeah. There were a lot of kids. Uh, there was a there was a Tina Gogo scene in Fort Worth at the time, so I worked a lot with a lot of bands. Bands called like the Cynics. There were you know, no very. I don't think anybody really did anything out of that scene, but there were there was a thriving scene did, at the time. Did you ever come across uh, Billy Gibbons in any iteration? Well, I saw him. 
I, I've I've met him much later, but I saw him at the time playing at the Cellar Club. Was it in the what would they call moving sidewalks? Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and they played. There were two or three cellars. There was one in Houston and one in Fort Worth, and I think one in Dallas. And that was a circuit, the Cellar Club circuit, yeah. owned by a guy named Pat Kirkwood, who yeah. was a, who was a character. Sure, they're all characters. The guys who own clubs. That's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah, it's their world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they right. are the king of their world. That's right. You're so right. <laughs> so, how do you shift out of uh, you know that groove into like you, you know what changes for you at what age to where you start playing more and and, and playing your own songs and well, uh, um, I, Bob, I ran into Bobby Newerth. It's a funny story, really. Just after Janis Joplin died, yeah, I got a call from Albert Grossman, who wanted me to come up to Woodstock and uh, audition with the Full Tilt Boogie Band. For what reason, I don't know. But I guess because Dylan had liked my songs and Albert had heard the songs. Which songs did Dylan like? There was a, you know, I was, I had recorded maybe eight or ten demos that I was sending around to people to to get recorded. And Dylan heard a friend of mine named Lindsey Holland uh, was working for Dylan at the time and was playing the songs on the bus. Yeah. Oh, wow. And and Dylan liked them. So anyway, I got this call from Albert Grossman to, to uh, come up to Woodstock, and I was staying at my friend Stephen Bruton's house, and the first night I was there, there was this extraordinary jam session with Bobby Charles. First night I heard Tennessee Blues. He had just gotten out of jail in Tennessee and came, yeah. came to town with this song, Tennessee Blues. What and, was going on in Woodstock that everyone's going up there? Well, the, the band was up yeah, there. Yeah, I knew that. You know? Yeah, oh, so they were kind of attracting uh, yeah. everybody. They were wrangling the roots of America. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Amos Garrett was there who had just played this great solo on Midnight at the Oasis. And we played music all night long, drank a lot of tequila. Yeah. And there was this guy, Bobby Newerth, there. I know his name. Yeah, he's an extraordinary cat. He was the straw that stirs the drink, as they say, in the in the folk music in Cambridge and in New York. Yeah. And he was in Don't Look Back with Dylan. He was Dylan's aide-de-camp in, in that movie, Don't Look Back. And... Uh, I woke up the next morning not remembering going to bed at all, and we, were, I, I, I woke up and we were in these two twin beds, and I looked up and Newerth was in the other bed, and there was a bottle of tequila between us. Yeah. And I looked at him through the tequila, and he woke up and he grabbed the tequila and took about three massive swallows of this thing and handed it to me, and I I sipped it, and he said. I didn't see any bubbles, <laughs> and that was that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And Newerth and I have been close friends since that night. He's still around. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and when he was putting together the Rolling Thunder Review in New York, so with, he's, with is he Bob. a producer or an A and R guy or a, no? Like he's a, a songwriter and a painter. He's you know he's never signed a contract in his life. He's he wrote, got records out. Yeah, he does. He wrote, Lord, Won't You Buy Me a Mercedes-Benz. Oh, okay. Right. Okay, you know, good. Yeah, He's sure. a great songwriter. Okay. He worked with Christofferson Okay, yeah, that's how I know the name. Worked with worked with Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin. And at any rate... Uh, you didn't take the gig with the uh, the Full Tilt Boogie Band. No, I no, I didn't take that gig, but then this Rolling Thunder thing came up. And I, I was not really ready to be a performer for the Phil Tilt Boogie Band or Rolling Thunder. <laughs> they wanted you as a guitar player? Yeah, and to sing sing some songs. Yeah. So, uh, but I took the gig for the Rolling Thunder uh, tour, and that was my that was the beginning of me trying to learn how to perform. So that was a, a real circus. 
It right? was, yeah. I mean, like, wasn't Ginsburg there too for a while? He was there the whole time. Sam yeah. Shepard? Yeah. Like odd uh, odd sorts. Every, everybody traveled together to all the shows? Yeah. So what'd you learn on that thing? What'd you take away from it to you kind of enter your own music? Oh, over? everything. You know, I've repeated that Rolling Thunder a few again and again. The Roy Orbison Black and White Night Show was a version of the Rolling Thunder Review. Uh-huh. Uh, the... the uh, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou, the Down from the Mountain tour and film that came after Oh Brother Where Art Thou was a version of the Rolling Thunder. So did. just the, uh, the the kind of, uh, not quite a, a variety show, but a traveling community. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. A, a collaboration among uh, various artists and, 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 and being able to, Jacques, Jacques Levy actually really helped me and taught, I talked to Jacques a lot about how he, he, do you remember Jacques Levy? I he, don't. He directed Oh Calcutta off Broadway. Okay. And he, and he wrote Desire with Bob. He did. And he directed the Rolling Thunder Review. And and he he taught me a lot about how you tell a story with different songs and different artists over a period of time. So you can do a three or four hour show where you're changing the voice every 10, 10 or 15 minutes. So the audience never has the chance to become used to a voice. Right. And then you combine those voices in different in different configurations. Right. They, they don't get used to a voice, but they, they get used to the context. Right. Like yeah, you, you've created this vast that's it. context. You, yeah, you create a context and then you tell a story. And what are the what are the songs about and what part of the story are they telling? Right. So you 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 that's exactly what we did with Oh Brother Where Art Thou, right? We, well yeah man. I mean it's like you, you know, I I, I don't know you know, I know that that's a lot of what people know you for. I, I think the first time uh, I I got into your stuff was that uh, the album, The Talking Animals. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I was like in college, uh-huh. like it's probably my last year at school, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> and that was before I knew anything really in any broad sense about music or what you might have been doing previous or what you were producing or anything else. But I loved that record, you know, and uh, and and and. From there, you know, when when I I kind of start to hear about you here and there, and then oh brother, where art thou? I, I just pictured you as this guy that, you know, you know would go out and and do your music, but then just you know be overwhelmed by all the music in the world. <laughs> I think that's probably a pretty good description. I'll take that. <laughs> so, but but that thing is it like it, it was so funny because when I was walking around my house before you came, trying to figure out where to start a conversation with you, I, I, I my, for some reason, I the in that moment, I was like, I have to ask him if he believes in ghosts. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You know. Well, because when I think about you, you know when you put together something like that that soundtrack and that group of artists to do songs that that are traditional and and older and uh, their specific songs that you chose from you know however you chose them that you start to realize that that music if you honor it you know especially traditional music or old music that that is. The, a sort of uh, a good ghost. That's right. That you know that you're you're trying to honor a ghost and and then allow them to talk again. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I I agree with that. So what was the process? I mean, you know, uh, I know you did a, a lot of solo records and and uh, on your own, but you know, production and and curating, you know, seems to be have taken up a lot of your time. Right. Well, yeah. That's that's what I've spent most of my time on. Just recently. Uh, about three years ago, Marshall Brickman called me up. You know Marshall he, Brickman? Yeah, the, he's a screenwriter, right? 
Well, he's an interesting guy. I wanted to give you a quick description of Marshall Brickman. He was one of the original folk musicians in, in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village yeah. in the 50s. Yeah. And he played all the instruments. He played on Judy Collins' records. He yeah. played on a lot of records. He was a session guy. He was the guitarist on dueling banjos from Deliverance. Oh, so I'm thinking of a different guy, I guess. No, I'm coming to, I'll, I'll oh, get to that. Yeah. So he, he did that for a number of years. He ended up, by the time he was... Uh, in his early 20s, he ended up in Hollywood working on Candid Camera f- with Alan Funt. Right. Then by the time he was 23, he was head writer on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. Uh-huh. And then he invented the Dick Cavett Show, He just whatever you call yeah. that. And oh, then, and that's where he got hooked up with Woody Allen through Rollins and Joffe and Dick Cavett. And then, right. And then uh-huh. he wrote Manhattan. Yeah. And then he wrote uh, Annie Hall. Right. And then he started, got into Broadway and he wrote... Uh, Jersey Boys and some other plays. That's recent. Yeah, recently. He's still going. Yeah, he's he's an amazing. What an interesting. But uh, it's interesting the guys that that survive because they change. Yeah. You, you know, because I've I've talked to a couple of cats from that scene in New York. Like I've talked to David Bromberg, and I've talked to uh, John Hammond Jr. And you know, they, neither one of them. You know, after the fact, I realized. Yeah, you know, they they were both sort of hobbled by by drugs at different points in their careers, uh-huh. but uh, but they were they were part of that and and they stayed within the confines of what happened at that time. Right. Yeah, they didn't move on. Right. Yeah. Well, but so, Hammond's pretty great. Yeah, they're both great. Yeah, oh, they're both killer musicians. Oh, Love yeah. John Hammond Jr. The, the best. Yeah. So Marshall Brickman calls up yeah. and says he's writing a play about the people who played Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. And, uh-huh. and most of your listeners may not even know who Roy Rogers and Dale Evans were, but Roy Rogers was the biggest cowboy star, yeah. singing cowboy in sure. the 40s. Yeah. He was a huge movie star. And then in the 50s, when when my generation, my friends were all growing up, he yeah. had a television show. Right. And, you know, everybody wanted to be Roy Rogers. He was the most marketed person. They had Roy Rogers everything. Sure. Roy Rogers lunchbox. There was a restaurant, chain restaurant for years. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the it was an it was an interesting idea to me because it, it, the people who play we all thought that Roy Rogers and Dale Evans were actual people, but they were actors. It was a guy named Leonard Sly who played Roy Rogers, and a woman named Frances Fox who played Dale Evans. Was this horse Trigger? Yeah, that yeah. was his horse, right. and his and his dog was Bullet. Oh, yeah. So, good name. Yeah, but but he was also Native American, so he never would shoot an Indian in a in a in any of his films or uh-huh. television shows. At any rate, I started writing this this the music for this play with Marshall, and uh, and it took me a solid year. Once I started, once I took the job of writing a, a musical. Yeah. And even though Sam Shepard and I worked on several plays together, I was writing music for plays, but this was different. This was like a where I was writing lyrics that yeah. became part of the story. Right. And uh, and um, I, I started studying all the great Broadway composers, Frank Lesser, who I yeah. think is the greatest of them all. I, I read Sondheim's books. I, yeah. And I, uh, I listened to Rogers and Hart stuff and how they how they went about doing that. And... It was daunting, and it took me a solid year to write it. And after I got through, I started I started waking up at four in the morning every morning and writing for three or four hours. And then when I got through with those twenty songs, I uh, just kept writing. 
right. which, is, which is all the stuff that's turned in the in, into the invisible light. Yeah, I mean, even in like, because I really listened to Talking Animals, and like it seems like thematically, that first song that I think was a, a little bit of a hit for you, The Wild Truth, yeah. is, is would have fit on this record. Right. I've, o- I've only written about the same thing my whole life. Yeah, which you is, and me both. Yeah, right. I think that's what everyone does, but I've written about self-delusion and self-deception my yeah. whole life. Oh, yeah? Except I know so much more about it yeah. now than I yeah. did when I was, you know, a kid. So have you finally, you know, do you know when you're deluding yourself at this point? Uh, yeah, be- I'm better. I'm better. At ca- <laughs> I, I catch it more quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, there there is a certain amount of uh, of self uh, of self doubt that you have to let go of in order to uh, you know engage in uh, in in your creativity, and it maybe. You, you know, I, I'm projecting, but you know, if that's been the struggle, I I, I could see your uh, your appeal uh, to to working with other artists. Yeah, you, exactly. You know, what I mean? right. it's like, well, you know, I, you know I, I don't know if this is real or not. Can you just do your thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah. It you know it helps. Uh, it, I'm able to help them not make the same mistakes I've made. You know, that's yeah. that's been part of that the whole time. So that brings us. Well, where does it bring us? Where are we exactly? <laughs> when did you come to Los Angeles? I came to Los Angeles in 1960. 65 to sell a record I'd produced. And then I went to New York in 65 for the same reason. And then I moved out here probably about 1967 or 68. So you were here through all the, you know, Laurel Canyon shit yeah, and, yeah. The, and you watched it all, you know, turn to garbage. Well, yeah, I did. <laughs> in a word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you saw something beautiful just turn into garbage that manson deal really hurt everybody yeah he fucked the whole movement he really did yeah gave everybody a bad name gave everybody a bad feeling did you you see him around no never saw him uh and as soon as that thing happened i I got in my car and left i just thought this is bad i drove back to fort worth and going back to texas yeah (laughs) where things make sense yeah go look at the flatness yeah (laughs) 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 yeah i i can't imagine uh it, it just seemed like uh yeah, it, w- it was bending into some sort of you know drug-driven chaos out here in the late '60s, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Jo- you know, Joni Mitchell was was the queen of everything yeah. back then. She was so beautiful. It was like Elkie Summer, if Elkie Summer could have sung and written the most extraordinary songs. And mm. there was this feeling of uh, possibility and feeling of this is going to go someplace, and mm-hmm. it ended up just sort of getting turned into a commercial venture you know? yeah and in, in a drug-ridden cesspool yeah that too yeah but you were there for the the like you, you know um the troubadour you know all yeah, that stuff. every night yeah oh yeah so you yeah. saw everybody coming up yeah we were somebody somebody went through the window of the troubadour one night in the car no and from inside oh, out something has i can't who? remember who i don't remember if i had anything to do with it i might have had something to do with well, that i guess that's a good description of the time a yeah. guy went through the window not sure if i was involved <laughs> <laughs> yeah but were you friends with like harry nelson or any of the eagles guys or ronstadt or were no, you part? I, I knew ronstadt a little bit yeah i met harry nelson later i met him all later but yeah. at the time i was maybe just a little bit younger than them graham parsons no no I, missed no. that yeah, but you work with emmy lou yeah, and you know what I did see? I saw Richard Pryor there. Sure. Who absolutely killed. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw incredibly great shows there. And I'm sure I ran into all those guys and talked to them and everything, but nobody knew. There was 
Long Branch and Penny Whistle. I think that was hmm. maybe J.D. Souther and Glenn Frey oh, yeah, or something yeah. like I that. I just got one of their uh, record, the, the two of them. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah, was, they were they were there. I saw, you know, I would talk to those guys. I would see Linda around. But see, that's interesting because that was sort of, you know, that, that, that kind of, um, the, I, I guess that, that that's within the, parameters of sort of your world in the way that in, but I think you go deeper into it that that was this idea that we were moving forward American music you know we're melding uh, you know contemporary rock and what was known as country into something else with the with the birds and you know and Ronstadt and you right. know JD and those guys were doing right. something with singing singer songwriter stuff that was taking it out of that Nashville model but it wasn't really um it just became the Eagles, really. Yeah, that kind of happened. Yeah, they, yeah. they soaked the whole thing up, right, and and made it popular music, uh, and and that that's sort of the template, you know, until for, for a long time for country music actually. Yeah, it, the country music came around, right. appropriated it, and right. still didn't give those guys the the, the credit they deserve. That's true. So do you see, like, you know, let's let's move from uh, Oh Brother, you know, did, so you you feel as much as everyone else felt that that was sort of a, a, a masterwork of curation and production for you? Well, it was it was a, it was an extraordinary collaboration with Joel and Ethan, who are two of the most uh, two of the smartest and funniest people I know. Uh huh. Deeply funny. Was that where you started your relationship with Gillian Welsh, or was that before? No, I I started working with with Gillian. I'm and, sorry, Gillian. Yeah, I started working with Gillian. Um, I, I produced her first couple of records. I saw her playing at the Station Inn in Nashville for about twelve people. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and she had beautiful songs. Yeah, she's something, right? Yeah. So you started really producing, you know, full on in the 80s right no I produced I started out as a right, yeah, writer right. producer right oh and, yeah but full on yeah I started probably in the 1980s and you like it it, it seems very eclectic to me I've only talked to a few producers I you know I, I, I talked to uh, John Cale about production which was a, a you know I fucked that interview up because I, I <laughs> at the time I talked to him you know, I really wasn't on the pulse of his solo career which is astounding yeah, he's amazing. He really is. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm talking to him about you know producing Patti Smith and Iggy and the Stooges, and he's like, "I just took the gig, man. Yeah. I, they knew I could move the knobs." Yeah. You, know, he was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he made some great records with Bobby Newerth too. The cat we were talking which about one? earlier. Yeah, I don't remember the name of them. They did them over in Germany, I think. But uh, he produced them. Newerth did. No, or they was, they collaborated. Yeah, I probably have them. Like I, I, I go, I kind of scramble to get caught up on people, but uh, but that whole crew of people in England. And, you know that involve you know airs and Eno and yeah. uh, you, you know uh, the couple of the other ones. There was some odd, interesting music. Very much so. Yeah, that was from the time of experimentation and yeah. freedom. And this is what you know. I'm trying to live in that ghost on this new stuff we're doing. Where right to work to work in full autonomy. Right. Because the greatest art is made by artists working at full autonomy. Right. And the more, you know, this is why I love to, as a producer, I love to work on first records with people like I did with Gillian and Los Lobos and uh, the yeah. Bodines. And I've done, I've done a lot of first records, the Counting Crows. Right. Because, not, not because, people say, well, they had 20 years to write their first record and then not much time to write the second one, which is all true. 
but the writing for 20 years, they were writing in full autonomy. Yeah. They had nobody, uh, no record company telling them what the charts right. said or anything. Right. That. Yeah. So I, I feel you get, you get a, a real pure shot of, of, the artist in that first and you did record. that with uh, well I mean did, did you do you didn't, was that Marshall Crenshaw's first record no I did no. His, his that was probably his third record or something but it seems like you work with the Bodines every uh, every every uh, few years every once in a while yeah I like the, but the first guys. yeah the first Bodines record was a pretty big record yeah it did really well yeah and Elvis Costello you picked up later in life yeah, yeah that's right but Spike's a great record you did Spike I did Spike and King of America which oh, is yeah. King of America is one of my favorite records I've ever gotten to work on yeah yeah elvis is an extraordinary cat great teacher yeah i yeah he does he does have the big brain he works under full autonomy himself sure he's always maintained full autonomy so have the cohen's you know yeah so is dylan yeah those are the these are the so is sam shepherd sure so all of these guys this is one of the things i've learned from them is how to do that and Certainly, this this new record where nobody's telling anybody anything. Did you, know? you ever work under those pressures? Yeah, as a solo artist. Yeah, quite, through record companies. Yeah, yeah. The uh, occasionally, but they've never <clears throat> they've never said much to me. The re- the record companies actually, although they had terrible reputations because they would rob artists blinds yeah. certainly, but they didn't they didn't completely destroy artists' lives like the internet thugs have right know? sure you know yeah but uh by and large they were almost patrons of the arts compared to what we have now yeah except uh, on that second or third record yeah I, well I they imagine could, they're just wonderful on that first record because they're rolling the dice they could they could meddle mm-hmm. but i never got anything like the kind of notes that i've seen uh networks give to to writers and artists oh yeah so many people yeah yeah Yeah. it feels to me that with the record companies it's just one asshole with tv there's like a dozen yeah (laughs) and they would usually say everything's great except we need a single right it would usually be just like how are we going to sell this give us something to sell this with right so it was the the other 12 or 15 or 10 or however many songs they would let you do what you wanted yeah if they could move that thing if they would just if you would just give them the one thing but what's interesting about the production resume is that you, you know you seem sort of adept at uh, really approaching a, a, a lot of different types of people, and there's people that you've recorded, you know, several times. I mean, I think that last Almond Brother, I, you know, that was really a great bit of producing. Oh, there. I love, you know, I love that record. I, I love, love that. Record. I love Greg, and that's that's another one of my favorite records I've ever gotten. To I work think that on. was his last record, right? Yes, well, I think he may have made one more, but but Low Country Blues, I think you yeah. you 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 opened that portal. Yeah, I went, I just went, uh, I, you know, C.S. Lewis said, if you're doing a mathematical sum and you come up with the wrong answer, there's no use proceeding from there. You have to go back and find where you made the mistake. Yeah. And then that's, that's where progress can begin. So yeah. sometimes progress moving forward is accomplished by moving backward. And that that's what I've done with several artists. I've gone back in. But into, you get to move backward in, in a vehicle that's modern. That's right. So you get to do both at once. You get right. to go two directions at once. And that's what we did with Low Country Blues. And I've tried to do that with Elton on some of his things. On I, the Leon Russell record? Uh, yeah, did you definitely. That, the two of them? Yeah. yeah. That, yeah and, and I was there at the Troubadour when... Elton when he came, came to town the first time yeah for that week and blew everybody's mind and and was you know just 
exploded into a major star in a week. Did you feel that you had success in doing that with Elton? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. The the record we made, Diving Board, yeah, uh, was very much a trio, piano, bass, and drums record. Huh. Which is how he was playing at the time. Of course, I mean his voice is at least an octave lower right. than it was. Sure. I listen to those early Elton records now and it sounds like he's on helium or yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good band though. Oh, the band's great and he was great. I don't mean that to denigrate no, his no, early no, records. No, 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 I know. Yeah, but way. like it's you know, as people get older to strip it down, it's make, it makes it interesting. I mean, yeah. I think that you know what uh what Ruben did with Johnny Cash was sort of astounding. Yeah, right, beautiful. Yeah, it's the same. That's the same idea. Go yeah. just go back to the core of yeah. who the person is and what he loves in the first place. Right. Go find. Try to try to uh, identify the person's true love. Right. I mean, but you recorded you recorded BB King late too. I mean, two thousand and eight. Same sort of process. Going yeah. back into going back into you know see that my grave is cl- kept clean and those <laughs> yeah. those songs of his youth. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And it, it, though you didn't get to work with Bob, you did. Uh, you did carry Jacob through a couple, huh? Well, uh, <laughs> I did. I wouldn't say carry him, but yeah, I love yeah. Jacob's a beautiful artist. No, oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. yeah, I've talked to him. Yeah, yeah it's funny because like you know, uh, you know, they, it was one of those interviews where it's sort of like, am I allowed to talk about his dad? Uh, yeah. And then like you know, it, and even if he's reticent to it, eventually you're sort of like, you know, well, do you talk to your dad? He's like, yeah, of course, he's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jacob is a very funny, witty guy. Very and, funny, and he uh, he never re- reveals that uh, in in public for some reason. He he's very guarded, which well, I understand. I, I used to be very guarded too. I've given up on being guarded. Well, I this mean, is, it's like you know, I mean, he knew what he was getting into. It's like oh, if your dad's Bob Dylan, yeah. like, I'm gonna gonna be a singer songwriter. Yeah, like, well. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, he knew what he was getting into, but there was no way for him to know what he was getting into at the same time. But he's you know? a great songwriter in his yes, own right. Is, yeah. And you know, and, and and I love I get did you never got to work with the Heartbreakers, though, huh? Tom uh, Petty and those no, guys? No, I never did. It I would did, seem like it'd be a good match. Yeah, I would have loved to have worked with Tom. I did I did music direct his uh Music Cares uh, tribute uh-huh. a, a year before he died, and that, I love Tom. He was an amazing oh, cat. He's really he's one of those guys where you, you know, if you just sit with the catalog, you're like, holy yeah, fuck. yeah, one great song after another. Really, something uh, um, amazing about that. And you recorded your ex wife a few records, yeah, nice six to... or seven records. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's well, nice. She's she is still one of my very. She's maybe my favorite artist I've Sam ever worked Phillips? with. Yeah, Sam yeah. Phillips is incredible. She's a great, great songwriter. She lives right around the corner from where we're sitting at I the know. moment. That's wild. And, now uh, I know that. <laughs> she's a great songwriter and a deep soul woman. Yeah. And, not, and, out, and then out of like wherever you do a Cassandra Wilson record. Yeah. Well, I've worked with Cassandra a lot. And yeah. We just put her, we used her to good effect in the latest seri- uh, season of True Detective. She sang the the title, main title song. Oh, that's her? Yeah, yeah that's that Cassandra. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I didn't keep up with her, but, like, I, I, the first time I heard her, it was like, holy shit. Yeah, she's she's a, she's the last living jazz singer, you know? Interesting. Yeah. Is that true? I, I think so, probably. I mean, I, I think you could say Diana Krall is a jazz singer, but she's not... She's not the kind of jazz singer that that Cassandra is. Right. She, Diana is a great pianist. She she was uh, Oscar Peterson's protege. Oh wow! Yeah. And she's a brilliant musician and a great singer. 
she's also Canadian, you know, so that, and, and, and Cassandra's just, Doesn't from, have the same baggage. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't right. have the American baggage. Well put. Yeah. You know, Cassandra says that down in Mississippi, they say the reason there's so much trouble between the races is because we're all related. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And she comes from right down there in the Delta, and she's got, she's got all of that. And you, you also helped uh, old Robert Plant turn his, uh, his uh, vibe around. I hope to do that again one of these days. You like so, that guy. I, I do love Robert, and I love Robert and Allison together. The two of them have extraordinary chemistry. And, you know, speaking of someone who, yeah. when you listen to his early stuff, sounds like he's on helium, you know. Sure. But when he, but as a, as a grown man, when he lowers his voice into that softer place, yeah. it's still, it's more mystical. It's more beautiful. It's more... Well, he can sing. Yeah, he can sing great. <laughs> and the two of them together, they have these beautiful tones yeah. that create five other people. You know? I, I like that. Uh, that like, here's the, the weird thing about, about superstars aging is that, you know, and, I, and, and I've talked to a lot of them, uh, a few of them anyways, and they always think they're doing their best work now. Mm-hmm. And, and they might re- very well be. Uh, it's just that the audience has gotten a little smaller. Right. And and the expectations are different, and yeah. they're older gentlemen, and they may not get the, uh, the 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 reverence that they once had for what they did when they were kids, but they they could be right, uh, yeah. you know. And it's funny because I interviewed McCartney, you know, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life because because every guy his age that I've talked to says that, like, they, let's talk about the new record, you know. Yeah, yeah. Right. And a, a lot of times they're not right, but it's fine, you, you know. But but I said to McCartney, I said to him, I said, uh, you know, uh, a lot of artists your age think they're doing their best work now. Do you feel that way? And he goes, uh, I was in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for him, because how do you put down right. the Beatles, yeah, man? They're, that's a pretty high bar. That's, <laughs> they're our Bach, you know. They're just in another. It was so funny. Yeah. It was so beautiful. <laughs> but a very good provocative question, I have to say. I know. I really thought I had it in the bag. I going to get him on that one. Nope. Completely self-aware. Yeah. What, are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah. It really something. Now, in let's just talk a, a couple more minutes about you know working with the Coens. Now, Inside Lewin Davis. One of my favorite. That's... Maybe their one. best movie. Yeah, I love it. You know, not everybody loved it, but I liked it because it was the story of my life. That's you what know? I thought. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, and Springsteen said it's the story of my life, except with a happy ending. You know? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's what we all that's what we all went through. That was the that was the gauntlet we ran. Oscar right. Isaac is uh, did an incredible job of playing uh, uh, authentic folk music yeah. from the 50s did you have you to know? coach him no he he uh, yeah a little bit i mean i what i did mostly was just keep everything away just to let him give him space to do what he did but, yeah but i'll tell you he did an extraordinary thing which the coens wanted to shoot all the music live yeah which is the best way to do it right and we did it without a click track which you never do in the movies because you can't cut from one shot to another if yeah. it's not done to a consistent tempo. Yeah. So I was sitting about four or five feet away from him with a stopwatch timing measures. Right. While we shot. Yeah. To make sure he didn't speed up or slow down. And he and he had drilled so hard for six months that he didn't once. He didn't he never varied tempo. Huh. It was. It's an extraordinary feat. Yeah, I, I do have to watch that again. So all that stuff you just uh, did. You was it the? What was the process of deciding the songs for all of it? 
I don't know. We've we've always just kind of talked about it until they're there. You and the Coens? Yeah. And that's the same with the uh, O Brother? Yeah, all of them, yeah. Uh-huh. And what else? What other ones do you do? The Lebowski? Big Lebowski. Yeah. Uh, Lady Killers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we've done we've done a few documentaries in between. Right, maybe another one or two in there. I can't remember. Right yeah, now. but yeah, you guys all get along. Very much so. In fact, they're so good at getting along, the two of them. Yeah, and they are able to reach a consensus so effortlessly that they are able to con- include anyone else in their process. Yeah. So, so I've never I've never seen a really uncomfortable moment on a set with That's those great. guys. You know, one of my favorite movies is A Serious Man yeah, because I'm a, a, you know I'm an American middle class Jew and it all seemed very familiar to me. <laughs> but uh, but I just thought it was a, seemingly a very personal movie. And again, the ending you know with the with the the old rabbi listening to White Rabbit. Yeah. The, <laughs> 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 yeah. The kid stoned at his bar mitzvah. Too good. <laughs> it's too good. I got to. I got to watch them all again. Yeah. So let's uh, let's zero in on uh, one other thing. I I, I, I want to talk about this because I got the record, and I didn't know what the fuck it was, and I still don't know where it comes from. But music from the American Epic Sessions. Oh yeah. You know, I, and I listened to it, and I'm like, you know, I, did Third Man put it out? Did I yeah, get that? Th- okay. Yeah, Jack put it out. And uh, and you know, what what was the uh, conceit of that? You were involved with it. They pulled out an old machine. Yeah, they found they found an old. Uh, requ- there were these back in the old days. What happened was in 1926, the record business collapsed because of the pro- proliferation of radio in the right. big cities, and all the records were sold in the big cities. Yeah, and because people could get music for free, they didn't want to pay for it anymore. Yeah, so the record companies took these portable recorders down south uh-huh. and started going recording blues and country musicians with the idea they weren't called blues and country musicians at the time yeah. but they were recording poor musicians in poor parts of the world because they didn't have the same radio uh, access that they had and they could still s- sell records so they would go to a furniture store in Mississippi and say is there anybody around here who's good in the because fur- the, all the all the records and the record players were s- sold in furniture stores uh-huh. and manufactured by furniture oh, companies this is in the 20s yeah yeah so so they would go down they would say well if you go down the road here this road there's a guy down there who's really good mississippi john hurt go down there and record him so they would take these massive machines that were portable down the road and they would record no electricity no electricity it was all done by pulleys right and and how did they work it was like the weight would drop in a certain time frame yeah and that was what was digging the grooves yeah and you only had it would last two minutes two two minutes and 20 seconds was all the time you had so you had the weight hooked up to a pulley that was hooked up to the uh, the needle that was that was, was grinding that to, was it was hooked up to the turntable that was digging the plate yeah, the turntable was moving. The needle was stationary, but right. it, but it would move around the needle, and that's where you get the original plate. Right, and so they would take the they would take those recordings, and they were on they were on discs, and they would pack them in ice. They could only record in the winter because yeah. it was done on wax. Oh my so god! So they would pack it in ice, and they would ship it up to New Jersey or wherever the pressing press plant it? was. That's yeah. crazy. 
And the guy at the furniture store would say, okay, well, if you do that, I'll take a thousand records. So they would send the discs up, the masters up. The wax masters. Yeah, and then send back a thousand records, and that would be it. So you got one of those machines and recorded a bunch of current artists and a couple of older artists on them. Yeah, I thought the Nas piece was really great. Yeah, some of them are good. It's interesting that what was interesting to me listening to it is that you know, s- some of the way those records sounded was was not age. It was the equipment. That's right. Which would make sense, but yeah. a lot of times you assume, like, you know, it, you know, it gets something old about it, but it was amazing that the sound was there, that it did work, that yeah, you could hear. Yeah, it still works. I mean, it's a, it's pretty crude mechanics, but yeah. it still works really well. well you, you, uh, you and Jack, you must have good talks. He's an analog freak. Yeah, Jack and I are, he's a like a younger brother. Right. Yeah, you know, he's doing those direct to disc direct to uh to uh what do you call it all those third men that he yeah. the records that he records in the stage space go right onto the plate right yeah that's right some of them are great yeah they are it's as i said it's still the best the best sound the best sound uh, i think every musician will tell you that when you when you're working in tape or digital yeah. any, anytime you go to a disc the the acetate that yeah. you, you first record on is yeah. the best sound you'll ever hear. And that's a what is that made out of? Uh, it's, copper or it's, aluminum? No, or? it's made. It's I think it's aluminum with an acid. It's an aluminum uh, base with yeah. an acetate on top of right. it. Right. But the acetate is very soft. So once again, the needle pressing into the groove creates heat, which melts the acetate. Right. And same with wax. The you couldn't pl- once you cut one of those masters, you couldn't play it. You just had to send it off and get it made. Wild, you know, because they, they would melt. So, ac- the acetate is ha- is the first step you take in making a an album, a vinyl record. Yeah. But if you just listen to the the acetate before yeah before before you press yeah, then it's the best sound you'll ever hear. The pressings never sound as good as the acetate. Do you have an acetate collection? I do actually. Yeah, I do, but they've all been played, so they're all pretty scratchy. They're spent. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, the new record's great. Thank you, man. And uh, you, you know, I I, I I hope it finds an audience. I think it will. We'll see. There's, but you're happy with it? It's autonomous. It is, is autonomous. That- there th- there are three of them. We've just finished recording the second one, and we're going to put them out every every few months. Is, the, is it the Acoustic Space series? It's the Invisible Light series. Oh, okay. The, the second one's called Spells. And we've oh. recorded the second one because I hope to put it out in August or September. And or is it like uh, is it thematically different? Yeah, it's a little more. It's a little more driving. It's a little more up. Oh, so you're okay. So you're but starting the, in the. You're starting low. But the but thematically, it's all about the same thing. All of it is about the fact that we that human beings have undergone over a century of electronic programming and what that's done to us as a people, you know, and where that's led us, mm. uh, you know, between the conditioned responses that that Pav, Pavlov. pioneered sure yeah yeah our addiction to our phone but it's also led us to the place where we started where you could do a lifetime's a lifetime of work and uh celebrate it in three sentences put it out into the world and someone with no name and a picture of bob newhart as an avatar (laughs) will say you suck (laughs) it's funny and i'll tell you one i'll tell you a true story when i was from the time i was probably 10 or 11 till the time i was in my you know, probably 16 or 18 yeah i had a recurring nightmare which was i was in the in the 
parish hall of my Episcopal church. Yeah. And we were all lined up against the wall. And at the very far corner were these men dressed all in black. I couldn't see their faces. Yeah. And they were up, but they were black and they were intimidating and threatening. And they were taking off everyone's right hand and replacing it with an electronic hand that would be their new control mechanism. Huh. And I would wake up every, every, night from that dream in a cold sweat panicked i had it probably 15 or 20 times wow and it wasn't until probably 15 years ago that i walked into a coffee shop and i saw everybody staring at their hands that i realized oh they didn't have to cut off our hands they just put it in our hands yeah right and and i feel that that dream was was a was given to me because actually that's what i've been writing about all of these years is that that dream sort of propelled me into this it's i started reading teilhard de chardin and i started reading Jacques Ellul and and marshall McLuhan. yeah and getting into this idea of what is tech what where are we going with this technology sure. we have to with every technological advance we have to stop and take take a minute to de- to determine whether this is going to be something that makes us more human or less human. Yeah. And at the moment this current digital technology is is certainly making us less human in just that way you said that somebody who no one's ever heard of and has never done one good piece of work suddenly becomes an expert on what everything that's wrong with or just an asshole or just that yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's usually just that yeah because like nine times out of ten when you respond and they're like oh, I got you yeah they just yeah. want to connect yeah. so that is that's human. Yeah. That's all that's that's left. That's all too. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll see. They don't care how they connect or for how long. Yeah. But but what they're really doing is disconnecting, and that's the the problem. Have you used the the description of that dream in any of the... The, the spoken pieces? No, or? I haven't. You know, I just, I did an interview and somebody asked me, why did I, uh, uh, why did I get into this? And I started thinking about it and I realized, oh, that's why I got into this. That's yeah. why, yeah. that's why I started, I went on this whole. Fear of the hand. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't talk to the hand. Yeah. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> Good talking to you, man. You too, man. That was T-Bone Burnett. The new album, The Invisible Light Acoustic Space, comes out next Friday, April 12th. You can get it wherever you get those records. Uh, I may have been hallucinating. If you're still hanging in, uh, I may have been hallucinating. And I may need some sleep. And uh, I have no idea what what the future holds for me in a lot of ways. If everything works out in the immediate future, it'll be a show in Manchester. uh, Tonight. Oh, God. Ugh. The butter. The fucking butter. So good, though, right? Butter. Boomer lives! <laughs>